0: reunion isaiah chapter seven verses ten to sixteen and matthew chapter one verse twenty three was presented by ron julian on august third two thousand fifteen at gutenberg college's summer institute reunion to knock and the gospel of matthew the copyright for this recording is held by gutenberg college inc two thousand fifteen gutenberg college is a non-profit organization and contributions may be made at www.gutenberg.edu. This material may be copied and distributed in whole for non-commercial and educational purposes, subject to the inclusion of this introduction. All other rights reserved. Okay, from my perspective, we chose a particularly difficult one to talk about at first, although they're all difficult, so I'm not sure how you rank them. I've tried to look at what a lot of different people have said about this passage just to sort of stimulate my own thinking. And what I find is there are a million different perspectives on how to put all this together. And there are so many details to talk about. I could spend the whole time that I have allotted to me here just talking about the different arguments and rationales concerning what does the phrase eat curds and honey mean. (laughs) There are so many different perspectives on is that a good thing, is that a bad thing, why is it a good thing, why is it a bad thing, is it always a good thing, sometimes it is, sometimes it's bad. So my purpose here is to try to highlight the sorts of things that enter into my thinking as I have tried to sort out what's happening in this passage. My purpose is not to convince you to understand it the way that I do at this point, but to try to be clear as to why I have gone in the direction that I have gone so that you're in a position to evaluate better the argument that I'm making and can say to yourself, well, Ron thinks that, but since I'm not convinced of that, then I might go in a different direction. That's my purpose. I hope that I will be clear enough so that when Jack talks about his perspective, any places where there are differences, it will be clear what those differences are and what they might be rooted in. So there's kind of a narrow question and a broad question I want to explore. The narrow question, obviously, is does Matthew believe that Isaiah 7.14 is a prediction of the virgin birth of Christ? Is that what he understands that passage to be saying, and is that why he's quoting it? Isaiah says, behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. So is Mary the virgin that Isaiah is talking about is Jesus, the son whose name is Emmanuel. That's the narrow question that we're talking about here, which is the difficult and controversial question. There are scholars of the Bible that I respect who make arguments on both sides of that question. So As I say, it's a very complicated one. I'm going to try to speak to that issue a little bit. And then the broader question is, just more generally, what is Matthew doing in quoting Isaiah? That is, he is making a connection between the birth of Christ and something in the predictions or theology of Isaiah. More broadly speaking, how is he appealing to the Old Testament? What's he doing with Isaiah In that case, what does he want us to think about Jesus in the light of what Isaiah said? I want to start by giving you a few of my starting assumptions as I go into this. I think that will be important. You'll forgive me for going on a little bit about this, but I think it's important. First, all of us at Gutenberg College have a high view of the authority of the Bible. I think you all know that. I have no intention in my comments to doubt or question Matthew. Both Matthew and Luke teach the virgin birth of Christ, and I firmly believe in that. The issue is not whether the virgin birth happened. The issue is how Matthew connects the virgin birth with Isaiah 7.14. I also am not at all doubtful about Matthew. I think he has dealt with Isaiah with integrity, and the argument that he's making from Isaiah is a legitimate one and a good one and one that we need to pay attention to. So I'm not setting out to say, well, look, Matthew got it wrong. He thinks it's a prediction about Jesus, but turns out it isn't, or anything like that. That's not at all where I'm coming from. Two, my belief is that the book of Matthew is deeply rooted in the Old Testament. Matthew knows the Old Testament well, and he expects his readers to know the Old Testament well. David talked about this a little bit. It is absolutely essential, not just appropriate, but essential that when we're reading in Matthew that we look at it in the light of the Old Testament background to what he's talking about. When he says something that alludes to something in the Old Testament, he expects his readers to be familiar with what he's talking about and to think deeply about the connection between those things. We're not imposing something on the text to go back and try to carefully understand the passages in Isaiah or wherever. That's what Matthew expects us to do. To give just one example, I started teaching in Matthew recently, and the first thing that I had to talk about was the genealogy that starts out Matthew. And what struck me in looking at that genealogy is how much Matthew is expecting us to know about the background to that genealogy, how much he is telling a story through that genealogy that he doesn't really specifically articulate. But he says that Jesus is the son of Abraham. He says that he's the son of David. He says that he's the Messiah, the Christ. And all of those are concepts that he does not explain the significance of but are actually very significant, important concepts that are essential to understanding what he's saying in the genealogy. He divides his genealogy into three parts, and it's not just an arbitrary numeric sort of thing, it's very interesting the way he divides his genealogy, because he says that Jesus is the son of Abraham, and he's the son of David, so the first part of his genealogy is from Abraham to David, but then you might think, well, he would divide it into two parts, the first part of the genealogy would be from Abraham to David, and the second part would be from David to Jesus, because... Those are the two people that he evokes. But the line from David to Jesus is divided into two parts. And the dividing line is the Babylonian captivity, the deportation into Babylon. And that involves an understanding of the incredible significance of that event in the history of the Jews, in salvation history and what God is doing. This middle group in the genealogy is those descendants of David that actually ruled on the promised throne of David. But then the last group after the deportation to Babylon were dealing with descendants of David who were not kings because the throne has been thrown down. And the promises that were made to David and the promises that were made to Abraham and all of those promises seem to be threatened by the judgment that God has brought upon Israel. And so then Jesus is come to be seen as the Messiah, the one who comes to fulfill and ultimately bring about the promises to Abraham and to David about blessing that would come to their descendants and blessing that would come to the world through them. I don't think that's reading things into the genealogy in Matthew. I think that's when you just stop and look at why did he go to the trouble to so carefully organize his material here the only way to understand that organization is by looking back to the story of the jews in the old testament and the significance of abraham and the significance of david and so forth so that's just the beginning that's the genealogy but i think that's what's happening all through matthew and it is appropriate for us to stop and slow down and think carefully about each of the things that matthew alludes to So, I think that's an important part of the assumption that I have when I come to Matthew. So, it is entirely appropriate for us to go back and look carefully at everything that he's quoting from. My third assumption is an important one, and you may not share it with me at this point, but at this point, I am firmly convinced that Matthew does not believe that every Old Testament passage he quotes is a prediction about an event in the life of Jesus. Here's what I mean. Let me try to explain this one. Matthew will tell us something about an event in the life of Jesus, and then he will say, this happened to fulfill what was said by the prophet. Well, it is typical of us to read that this fulfills what was said by the prophet as the prophet predicted something and then... It happened in the life of Jesus and so this event in the life of Jesus fulfills the prediction that was made. The prophet predicted that he would be 12 feet tall and have green hair and sure enough this child comes along who grows up to be 12 feet tall and have green hair and so that fulfilled the prediction that was made earlier. But I am convinced that there are a number of places where Matthew says that something in the life of Jesus fulfills something in the Old Testament that does not mean that. He is not saying the Old Testament predicted something specific about Jesus and now it happened. I think by the time we get through this week, we will have looked at several of the passages that just seem to me I can't understand any other way to take them but that Matthew knows that this passage is not a prediction about a particular thing in Jesus' life. And so he's appealing to it in another way. He's not saying this predicted that Jesus was going to do this, but rather there is a connection, a theological connection. Something about the life of Jesus is bringing to fruition the purposes of God that we first saw in this thing in the Old Testament. So... I'm going to make up, this is a silly example, but I'm trying to make up something that illustrates the kind of thing that I'm talking about here. So I made up this really silly story. We have the Jones family and the children in the Jones family have a very generous and loving uncle. This uncle has always cared for them, has always been there for them. They're very aware that he loves them and cares about them, but sometimes they take him for granted. And so at one point, their mother wrote them a letter to remind them that they shouldn't be taking their uncle for granted and all he's done for them. And she writes to them, Your uncle has always been there for you. Remember how he treats you at Christmas time. Out of his great love... Your uncle sends you a package tied up with string filled with generous and wonderful gifts. Let me repeat what she said to them. Out of his great love, your uncle sends you a package tied up with string filled with generous and wonderful gifts. Okay, so one day their uncle dies. The children receive a package from a law firm filled with legal papers. In the package, they find their uncle's will and other legal documents. Their uncle has left them his vast fortune. He has given them millions of dollars. He has given them all his factories and other businesses. And interestingly, the package from the law firm is tied up with string. And so their mother says to them, "'See, this is just like I told you. Out of his great love, your uncle sends you a package tied up with string filled with generous and wonderful gifts.'" Okay, now, the mother is not claiming, I would say, I mean, she could make the claim, but in in my story, she is not claiming that she had written a prophetic prediction that the lawyers would send a package tied with string. But she is using the similarity between the two events to make her point. Their uncle's Christmas packages came in a package tied with string, and that's what she was talking about, as evidence of his love for them, that he would send them a package at Christmas tied up with string. But their uncle's will also came in a package tied up with string. The mother uses the similarity to highlight the connection between the two events. At Christmas, their uncle displayed individual acts of loving generosity. But at his death, their uncle displayed his greatest act of loving generosity, giving them his entire fortune. So, their mother is saying, in essence, look, in both instances the packages came tied with string. I am using this interesting coincidence to show you the deep connection between them. The generosity your uncle showed at Christmas time with his packages tied with string has found its deepest fulfillment in his bequeathing his entire fortune to you, funnily enough, also in a package tied up with string. So my firm belief is that sometimes Matthew does something like this. Matthew says this Old Testament passage is fulfilled in Jesus. But the passage is clearly not a prediction that this event would happen in Jesus' life. Matthew instead is using a similarity between the two things to highlight how Jesus fulfills the purposes of God displayed in the Old Testament passage. So in my story... The mother is not claiming that she was predicting that the will would come in a package tied with string, but she's using the fact that both packages were tied with string to highlight the similarity. The generosity that he showed in his Christmas presents is fulfilled in its deepest sense when he bequeathed all his fortune to you. So I think that Matthew at times is doing something like that he may be saying, isn't it interesting that there are these similarities between a birth in Isaiah's time and the birth of Jesus, to talk specifically about the passage that we're talking about here. This highlights for us the theological connection between the book of Isaiah and the birth of Jesus. What I'm suggesting is we have to consider that as a possibility. What I'm saying is I see other passages where I think, it's indisputable that that's what Matthew is doing, that he is not claiming the Old Testament text is a prediction of something in Jesus' life, but is something else. So we need to consider the possibility when we look at this particular passage that that's what's happening. It may not be. Matthew believes that the prophets predicted things about the Messiah. So it's quite possible that Matthew could point to Isaiah and say, see, He predicted the virgin birth, and here it is happening in Jesus' life. That's quite possible. But it's also possible that he's saying, look, isn't it interesting the similarities between this passage and this passage because it highlights something hugely important about how Jesus has fulfilled the expectations from the Old Testament. He could be doing either of those things. Yes, it's a prediction, or no, he's using it in a different way. What I'm saying is... My assumption is that Matthew sometimes does this. He indisputably sometimes uses the Old Testament for different purposes than saying this predicted it and here's what it predicted. So we need to be open as we look at Isaiah to that possibility. We don't know that that's what it's doing, but it's possible that that's what it's doing. Okay, so those are the assumptions that I have as I come into this. So let me say a few things, really just a few things. I can't possibly deal with all of the ins and outs of this, but let me just give you a few highlights of my thinking about this. First of all, talk about Isaiah. As we saw as chapter 7 of Isaiah begins, we find that Isaiah has been sent to talk to King Ahaz. Ahaz is a descendant of David. He's one of the promised kings who would be in the line of David. But he was a, a faithless king. And things are not going well for him and his people. Part of what we know in the story, of course, is that David's kingdom very soon had split into two kingdoms. Ahaz rules the southern kingdom on the throne of David, headquartered in Jerusalem. But most of the Jewish people are now in the northern kingdom, and relations between them are not good. In fact, Ahaz is currently scared to death that the northern kingdom, in league with Aram is about to attack him. They have attacked before. He has suffered at their hands already at this point, as I understand it. And so Ahaz is facing this question, what do I do? How do I protect myself here? One possibility is to make an alliance with Assyria against the northern kingdom and Aram. So Isaiah goes to Ahaz, takes his son with him. God tells him to take his son with him. His son's name is Sher Yashuv, which means the remnant will return. There is a whole story in that name. It says that the majority of the Jewish people will be unfaithful and face dreadful consequences, probably exile and death, and yet there is a faithful remnant that will return and find blessing from God. So the name of the son is a mini-sermon on the prophetic theology of Isaiah. I think it's interesting to picture the scene when Isaiah goes to Ahaz and says, oh, have you met my son? The remnant will return. There's a message there. So Isaiah has come to tell Ahaz to put his trust in God, and he tells Ahaz, look, God is willing to give you a sign, ask for a sign to demonstrate that God will take care of you and keep his promises. Ask for anything you want Ahaz says, no, I won't. I think it's pretty clear that Ahaz's motives in saying, I won't take the sign, although he says he doesn't want to test God, seems pretty clear that he is not acting out of faith in that regard. So Ahaz rejects the sign, and the passage that we are looking at is what Isaiah says in response. Ahaz sees himself as having a political problem, There are two outside nations that are allied against him. They want to attack the southern kingdom and remove Ahaz from the throne. And so Ahaz is looking for political solutions. Maybe I should ally myself with the Assyrians. Maybe they can protect me from these guys. I think, though, if we understand the story, and as Isaiah spells it out, we know that there is more at stake than just the political fortunes of Ahaz. Ahaz is a Davidic king. Ahaz is a descendant of David, sitting on the throne of David, and God has made great promises concerning the throne of David, an eternal throne on which David's descendants will sit forever. And one of the kingdoms that is attacking him is the northern kingdom of Israel, his fellow Jews, who also have great promises made to them as children of Abraham and promises of blessing and Altogether, this is a mess of a situation. The northern kingdom is faithless. Ahaz is faithless. There is judgment coming upon the northern kingdom. There is judgment coming upon the southern kingdom. And Ahaz is not really taking God into account in the midst of this stuff. So the whole prophetic scheme, the whole set of promises regarding the blessing of Abraham and David to the people of Israel and to the world, ultimately. All of this is on the line in this situation. And in one sense, the response that God gives to Ahaz is quite negative. As you look at the next several chapters, the response here and then what Isaiah goes on to say in the later chapters, there's an awful lot about judgment and destruction coming. The northern kingdom is going to be utterly destroyed by the Assyrians. Ahaz, the southern kingdom, is going to be almost destroyed by the Assyrians, although they ultimately will not be. It's a pretty grim picture. But at the same time, there is a note of rescue and redemption in what Isaiah has to say. So in 713, this is right where we're looking Isaiah says to Ahaz, Then he said, "Listen now, O house of David, is it too slight a thing for you to try the patience of men, that you will try the patience of my God as well? Therefore, the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. He will eat curds and honey at the time he knows enough to refuse evil and choose good. For before the boy will know enough to refuse evil and choose good, the land whose two kings you dread will be forsaken. The Lord will bring on you, on your people, and on your father's house such days as have never come since the day that Ephraim separated from Judah, the king of Assyria. Okay, that note of redemption and rescue starts with the name of this child. The name of the child is Emmanuel. God is with us. The names of children are really important in Isaiah. When Isaiah goes to meet Ahaz, as we saw, God tells him to take his son, named the remnant shall return. This is a significant proclamation of the message that Isaiah has. Isaiah has another son. Swift is the booty, speedy the prey, which again has a message about the coming Assyrians and what they're going to do to the northern kingdom and Aram. And so here we have the story of a child who is given a significant name. God is with us. That is, God has not abandoned us. He is with us. He is on our side. He is here for us. He is going to be with us. He will certainly not abandon us, and so on. That's the Kind of thing that the name means. It's like a mini sermon. Things are looking bad, but ultimately God is with us. But because of the fairly negative tenor of this, we can ask ourselves I, if I were Ahaz, I would be asking myself, in what sense is God with us? I mean, what is it that you're talking about? Because as I say, the northern kingdom is going to be completely destroyed and the southern kingdom. Is going to be almost destroyed by the Assyrians. There's a place a little later in chapter 8 which basically says to the nations, I'm not going to let you completely destroy Jerusalem. You're going to pay in the end because God is with us. So, God is with us means you're only going to be almost destroyed. That doesn't seem like the most enthusiastic, God is on my side sort of message that you could imagine. So, What is it that ultimately Isaiah has in mind by that statement? In chapter 8, we see Isaiah saying, I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. He acknowledges that right now things are not looking good, but ultimately God is going to come through. And I think the thing that makes the most sense, the informing idea behind God is with us, is what Isaiah comes to in a number of places in his prophecy, but we come to it a few verses later here in chapter 9, where he says, But there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt, but later on he shall make it glorious. By the way of the sea, on the other side of Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light, Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. And then he goes on, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. So what is it that Isaiah is waiting for? How is it that God is ultimately going to keep his promise to be with them? I think ultimately we see God being with them in many ways. The fact that the southern kingdom was not totally destroyed at that time was a part of God being with them. But ultimately, God keeping all of the promises that he made to the sons of Abraham and the sons of David through the coming of a Davidic king, through the Messiah who would come and rule in righteousness forevermore, that's ultimately what's in the background. So I think that the implication of the name given to the child, Emmanuel, in part is ultimately pointing to, a little further down the line, In chapter 9, this coming child who is going to be a son of David, sitting on the throne of David and bringing about righteousness and justice. So as I would see it I think we can say at least this much the passage in Isaiah about the child whose name is Emmanuel is a messianic passage in the sense at least in the sense that the name God is with us is supposed to conjure up the ultimate promises of God that will be fulfilled in the Messiah. So that much seems clear to me. But now we come to the even harder questions. Who is this child? Who is this mother that are being talked about? Of course, I'm sure all of you explored these options in your discussion. One option is that the child is the Messiah himself. The child has the name God is with us because it is that child who, in fact, is going to be the way God is going to be with them. That would make sense. That the child that's promised there is the very child who is going to fulfill these promises and bring about God's rescue and redemption. That would make sense. Chapter 7 speaks of the birth of a special child who has a significant name. And then chapter 9 also uses the same language about the birth of a special child who has a number of significant names. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. And that child in chapter 9 is the Messiah, clearly. So maybe the child in chapter 7 is the Messiah. That would make a certain amount of sense. And it is interesting that God promises the sign to more than just Ahaz. He promises it to the house of David, and he uses a plural Listen, house of David, the Lord will give you all a sign. It's not just a sign to Ahaz, it's a sign to the house of David. So that seems to, hey, okay, so maybe we're talking about the Messiah. That would make a certain amount of sense. The problem with this interpretation is the words that immediately follow, which I, again, I would imagine that all of you wrestled with and, and tried to sort out the significance of. Speaking of this child, he will eat curds and honey... At the time he knows enough to refuse evil and choose good. For before the boy will know enough to refuse evil and choose good, the land whose two kings you dread will be forsaken. This really sounds like the birth of a child is being used as a kind of a timer. The child will be born. He will come to a certain age where he knows to refuse evil and choose good. At that time he will eat curds and honey. Why is he eating curds and honey? Because at that time, when he knows to refuse evil and choose good, the land whose two kings you dread will be forsaken. It sure sounds like it's saying there is a child about to be born, and when he reaches this certain age, the kings that you're worried about are no longer going to be a problem. That sure sounds like what it's saying. This is exactly like what God says concerning another son of Isaiah a little while in eight three the lord said to me name him maher shalel hashbaz that is swift as the booty speedy as the prey for before the boy knows to cry out my father or my mother the wealth of damascus and the spoil of samaria will be carried away before the king of assyria so there i mean it seems real clear this is a son of isaiah and before he gets to the point that he can cry out my father or my mother the wealth of Damascus and Samaria will be carried away by the king of Assyria. So, I mean, that seems very clear. There's nothing really controversial about that. And it sounds an awful lot like what was said about Emmanuel earlier, that his, the age that he arrives at is being used as a timer to indicate when these things are going to happen. So it sure seems then that the mother and child are not Mary and Jesus, but a mother and child of Isaiah's time. That is putting the context together in that way, that seems like the most reasonable way of putting it together to me at this point. If this is so, then who are this mother and child? number of options get proposed by people. I won't go into all of it. It seems to me that one very strong option is that we're talking again about a child of Isaiah. He has one child named The Remnant Shall Return. He has another child named Swift as the booty, Speedy is the prey. And then he has this child who is named God is with us. That is a very common proposal that is made, and that seems to me to be in the front among all of the options that I've heard for who this is talking about if it's not specifically talking about Jesus. What about this word virgin? Does it suggest that we ought to be reading this passage as talking about a virgin birth? All I can say is I've read the arguments for and against that. I've looked into these words somewhat myself. All I can say is it doesn't seem to me that the evidence is strong enough to really determine one way or another. That is, it's going to have to be the context that tells us ultimately what's being said here because the word itself just doesn't seem to me that we have enough evidence or is strong enough to really move us in one direction or another. That's the way it looks to me right now. It is interesting, as David pointed out, that the Septuagint uses a stronger word in Greek that seems to more strongly emphasize the idea of virginity, and that's what Matthew quotes. That's the word that he uses. But that's kind of where we're left, trying to sort things out. So let me then quickly say something about Matthew. You know the passage that we're dealing with here. So let's suppose, as I said, that the strongest contender here for how to understand Isaiah is that he's speaking about a child born in his time and the significance of the child as a sign is the name, Emmanuel. God is with us. That's the key to what Isaiah is saying. Let's suppose that that's true. What is Matthew doing then in quoting it? Can we find a way to understand what Matthew is doing that even makes sense? If Isaiah is not predicting a virgin birth... Of the Messiah in the future, isn't that what Matthew is doing here? Isn't he saying that it is a prediction of the virgin birth? And if that's not what he's doing, then what is he doing? Well, here's a way that we can explain what Matthew is doing that seems to me very similar to what he does in other passages that we could look at. He sees a very interesting connection between Isaiah 7 and the birth of Jesus. Just like the mother in my story saw this st- string that tied the packages together in both of the examples. Isaiah speaks of a special child whose birth and whose name is very significant. Matthew is also speaking of a special child whose birth and whose name is very significant. The name of the child in Isaiah means God is with us. The name of the child in Matthew is Yahweh saves or Yahweh is salvation. Those two names are actually very similar. Both names are pregnant with meaning. Both point to the fact that God is going to come through for his people. God is going to be with his people. Yahweh is going to save his people. And in both cases, in Isaiah and in Matthew, the means that he uses are the same. God is going to be with his people and save them through salvation the coming of the Messiah. And it is also interesting that the Greek translation of Isaiah uses a word that more strongly emphasizes the idea of virginity. Matthew does not have to be suggesting that it was a prediction of a virgin birth. He's just using it as, isn't that an interesting thing, that this passage talks about a maiden giving birth, and I, in my story we're talking about an actual genuine virgin who gives birth to a son. Joseph was told of the true virgin birth of a son whose name pointed to the salvation God would bring through the Messiah. And that's the key, is this story about the name. What is significant about the name of the child in Isaiah? It proclaims the message, God is with us. God is ultimately going to come through for us, is going to be on our side, and in fact, by implication, is going to send the Messiah. Well... Jesus has a name that is more than just a pointer to something out there. God is going to save us. Jesus is himself the Messiah. He is himself the one who is going to fulfill the promises made through the prophets. Jesus is the fullest expression of the theme began in Isaiah. In Isaiah, the birth and name of the child pointed beyond the child to the coming Messiah. But in Matthew... The birth and name of the child Jesus points to himself because he is the coming Messiah who will save his people. What Isaiah's child just signified, Jesus is in reality. This is the sort of thing that Matthew does in other passages, and I think that it's quite possible that that's what he's doing here. That's what makes the most sense to me at this point. Remember, My starting place is that right now it sure seems like Isaiah is talking about a child born in his own time with his age being used as a counter to say when certain things are going to happen. So that being the case, I don't see the statement about Emmanuel as being the prediction of a child way in the future. But what is significant is that the child's name, Emmanuel, points beyond itself to the ultimate salvation of God. Jesus is a child born with a special name who is the ultimate salvation of God. He's the one who brings about the salvation that Isaiah was pointing at. Now, there are people that I respect who have tried to argue that Isaiah was in fact talking about the child Jesus. They have various arguments that they give for why the language about He will eat curds and honey when he knows good and evil. And by the time he knows good and evil, those kings will be gone. They have various explanations for how that can be reconciled with it talking about Jesus. Those arguments have not yet convinced me at this point. So that's not the direction I'm going. If they did convince me, what would it change? What would change is everything that I said basically up to this point would still be true. The key is the significance of the name, Emmanuel. But now we would have the added truth that it is not just a verse about a child whose name points to the Messiah, but it would actually be a prediction of the birth of that Messiah himself. So the significance of what it is that Matthew is doing with Isaiah really doesn't change whichever way you take it, but it's just Specifically, how is it that we understand the connection that Matthew is making? At this point, it makes a lot more sense to me to see the child as being one that was born in Isaiah's time. What seems to make the most sense to me is that Matthew is not claiming that Isaiah predicts the birth of Jesus. Instead, Matthew is seeing a striking and profound parallel. The child in Isaiah is born to a maiden, Jesus is even more strikingly born to a maiden, an actual virgin. The child in Isaiah has a name that points to the salvation God will bring through the Messiah. Jesus also has a name that points to the salvation God will bring through the Messiah. And that's because he is the Messiah that will bring about God's salvation. So the birth of Jesus is the fulfillment of the theological hopes promised by the child in Isaiah even though he's not the fulfillment of a prediction that he would be born of a virgin. Matthew sees the birth of Jesus the Messiah as a profound consummation of the hopes of the Jewish people as expressed in this passage in Isaiah. So as I say, I've tried to lay out the places that are influencing the decisions I've made. If you disagree with me at any of those spots, then you might come to a different conclusion, but that's where I would go right now. So I'm going to stop with that.